Thank you, Lord, for, for giving us such wonderful lyrics to, to worship you with. Uh, thank you that um, we, we worship you with such things. Thank you also for the, the glorious truths that these songs remind us of. Uh, thank you for the melodies which are enjoyable uh, to sing. And I pray that uh, each time we gather for worship, um, that there would not be uh, merely a monotonous singing of, uh, or repetitious, I should say, singing uh, of the same songs, Lord, but that every time we sing such words, that they would implant themselves deeper and deeper within our souls, um, such, Lord, that our, our worship would be all the more sincere to you, uh, a, a fragrant offering uh, to the throne room of heaven, I pray. Grant that every time we consult them, and of course every time we consult your word, as we will do in a few moments, uh, that we would uh, glean more and more of your truth, knowing who you are more and more, such that we would worship you as we ought to. And Lord, I, I pray now, thinking of the, uh, the message, that you would uh, grant that the, the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you uh, as we consult uh, such a subject as, as man's sin, Lord, give us an appropriate reverence, Lord. Uh, Lord, help the, uh, the fear of you, as indeed we contemplated last week, to, uh, to fall upon us, and may we be appropriately humble before you. I pray, Lord, to your glory that I would not err even in one syllable. Uh, and Lord, if I do, which I hope it not be the case, uh, that such a, a syllable would have no effect, Lord, on these your sheep, uh, and that we would I'd be better off, Lord, for having been here this evening. I pray this all to your glory and in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so this evening, as, um, as Tom said this morning and uh, as I put in the group chat uh, earlier in the week, um, we'll be considering uh, man's relationship to God, uh, his sin. Uh, and I suppose usually when I am uh, considering a particular doctrine, uh, I consider that it is good practice and, and not absent in the present case, uh, but I consider that it is good practice to uh, look for that doctrine within the whole of Scripture uh, and then come to a, a consensus on, on what it's teaching, what it means, what it is, etc. Uh, and certainly, uh, to a greater or lesser degree, I will uh, do that this evening as well, um, but the, the main verses uh, per the, the Proverbs series that we'll be consulting uh, are within the book of Proverbs. And so the uh, the, the practical applications, the, the exact nuances of what we'll be considering uh, are, I suppose, a, uh, a proverbial, for want of a better term, um, look at the doctrine of sin. Uh, and you might like to turn to, uh, to Proverbs chapter 22, just whilst I continue to introduce the subject. Uh, for a, uh, a more wide-ranging view of sin, uh, you might consider the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, which I seem to be continually quoting, but it's a wonderful body of literature. Uh, question 14 says, what is sin? To which the answer comes, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Uh, any want of conformity, wherever we, uh, even for argument's sake, if we are trying to do the good thing, uh, where we fall short of God's holy standard, uh, which of course we do every time, for we are finite, imperfect beings. Uh, where we fall short of that glorious standard, uh, there is a, a want of conformity. And so this is sin. 
or where there is transgression of the law of God, where God's law says you shall not lie and nonetheless you lie, where you do not tell the truth. Uh, This is transgression, a breaking of the law of God. Uh, So what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Uh, And once again, I reference uh, Brian Suave's uh, musical version uh, of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, It occurs to me as odd that that particular melody for that one is a fairly joyous one, uh, even though it contemplates the doctrine of sin. Uh, But today, as we look through the various verses uh, that we'll look through mostly within Proverbs, uh, we'll explore it under, under three heads. The first one, God's favor is on the righteous, but his judgment upon the wicked. And I suppose relatedly, sin will cause you general and eternal difficulty. Secondly, God has made the wicked, or we might say the continuing sinner, for we are all wicked to start off with. Uh, God has made the wicked for trouble. He is glorified in their punishment. Uh, Probably one of the more popular doctrines of 2023. Uh, And thirdly, confession and forsaking of sin, rather than concealing, leads to mercy. So let's jump right in. Uh, Proverbs 22.5 is where I'll lead us to first of all. It says this, Thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. If you pursue the way of crookedness, wickedness, etc., however you might deem it, uh, thorns and snares, perhaps literally, but I think metaphorically is what uh, Solomon is contemplating, uh, those things will be in your way. Uh, Whereas uh, whoever guards his soul, whoever pursues that way which is right and good, wise, righteous, that person, uh, those thorns and snares will be far from them. Uh, And I thought, uh, as I studied this and contemplated it this week, uh, a few times, or probably numerous times, uh, over the last uh, series of the Proverbs, uh, I've alluded to this subject, that basically if you live in God's ways, uh, things will work well for you. God designed the world, therefore if you live in his ways, uh, things will work, quote-unquote. Um, whereas if you live against his ways, uh, you will come across difficulty, as indeed this verse talks about. Uh, So I thought rather than uh, repeating that notion again, not that there is anything uh, inherently bad about repetition, uh, but that we would contemplate a slightly different aspect or perhaps an application of this, uh, which I've not yet uh, done. And that being uh, the notion of karma. I think it's a good thing to... It's a a term which is bandied about within society. uh, And some folks would consider that this notion of God uh, blessing ways which uh, are in line with his ways and and cursing or making difficult ways which are not in line with his is an application of karma, uh, whereas in fact the two things are very, very different. Um, The other day in my workplace, uh, two of my, my co-workers had been to, a, I guess, an industry lunch, uh, and they had had the opportunity to, uh, to correct another gentleman uh, on his misunderstanding of a particular piece of legislation. Uh, that's the, the boring part of the story over. Uh, and they, they took some pleasure in doing that. I don't think they particularly like this gentleman. Uh, and subsequent to their correction of the gentleman, uh, there was, I, as I understand it, I wasn't at the lunch, Uh, 
but there was a, a decent degree of laughter at the gentleman's expense uh, that he had had a, this misinterpretation uh, of such things. Um, later that evening, about two hours later, uh, I'm told that these two co-workers of mine had some quite violent food poisoning uh, and they joked the next day that it must have been karma which uh, caused them to have said food poisoning. There is this uh, notion of, of karma which exists within secular society. Uh, logically, it implodes on itself because uh, those who are secular, those who are atheistic, uh, of course, do not believe in any kind of God, and yet it is their way of trying to, ex trying to give a cause and yet not acknowledging a causer. Uh, it, is, uh, it logically implodes on itself. Uh, and of course, then there is the more uh, religious view of karma, which is active in, in schools of, of, say, Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, for example, from my research during the week, uh, in various schools of Hinduism, uh, karma is either caused by Shani, which is the divine personification of the planet Saturn, or Isvara, and Isvara, um, I decided I wouldn't detail too much in this sermon, being a Christian sermon, not one on Hinduism. Uh, but Isvara has a, a range of understandings, uh, even within Hinduism. And so karma has both to do with good and bad effects in this life, as well as in the process of reincarnation. Uh, and as I say, modern secular notions of karma too are an errant attempt at explaining why good or bad things happen, why blessing and cursing, perhaps in the providence of God, occurs. To give a couple more points uh, in why uh, karma and God's blessing or cursing are, are different. Uh, karma is based on a false deity or, or false deities, plurality thereof, uh, or perhaps, given the secular notion, uh, no deity at all. And it relates to a false system in this life and or the false system of reincarnation. Of course, as Christians, uh, we acknowledge uh, one death and after that comes the judgment, so says Hebrews. Whereas the blessing and cursing of God uh, stem from a true deity and gives appropriate weight and value uh, both to this life and life after death. And here is perhaps uh, the most important difference between such things, I mean, aside from the fact that karma is based on false deities, uh, karma is a works-based system at its core. You do uh, good works in order to work off your bad karma. Uh, you do good works in order to achieve good karma and ultimately to be uh, reincarnated into higher forms and eventually to work off all your bad karma and, and achieve nirvana, uh, the escape from this endless cycle of reincarnation. And though God may well bless good works and curse or make difficulty or bring discipline upon bad, i.e. there are works involved in this life, salvation is ultimately uh, and, and totally a work of grace. There is no works involved on our behalf. It is solely the works of Christ on our behalf. Uh, indeed, as again, uh, Tom talked about a little bit this morning. So karma is at its core a works-based system. Uh, Christianity, salvation, is a, a grace-based system. We live in the covenant of grace. We are... Um, 
upheld by Christ's works, not our own. Christ's work on our behalf uh, is what upholds us through his perfect life, death, and resurrection, and his subsequent imputed righteousness placed onto us, placed onto all who turn away from sin and trust in him. We certainly uh, do not work away or outweigh our good works with bad works. We rely solely upon Christ. As Paul says in Romans, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift, not the thing that we work towards or outweigh good works with bad works, etc. And then subsequently, as you know, any good works that issue from that come from a heart that loves Christ and wants to live in his ways, uh, not as a means of obtaining God's favor. And so in short, God's favor and discipline, temporal and eternal, uh, is not karma. The two things are decidedly different. Second point, uh, and turn just back a few pages to, to Proverbs chapter 16. The second point is that God has made the wicked or the continuing sinner for trouble. He is glorified in their punishment. Verses 4 and 5 of Proverbs 16 say this, Yahweh has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to Yahweh. Be assured he will not go unpunished. And you might like to, uh, as I'm getting there, turn to Romans 9 in the New Testament. As we, uh, as we consider this point, uh, I think it's important for us to uh, keep in mind the, the name of the message, uh, and especially the first part. Uh, man's relationship to God. Man's relationship to God being the key point. We are to uh, remember at this point, especially perhaps, uh, but certainly in all of our theology, that we are to be theocentric and not anthropocentric. Or to put it in less Greeky terms, we are to be God-centered and not man-centered. Keeping, uh, keeping such things in mind and remembering that God is good will help us when we come to such doctrines as this. Uh, to keep in mind that all of history is about this good God, not about us poor little creatures. So let's uh, read Romans 9, verses 18 to 24. It says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called. We'll stop there.
we readily and rightly say, thinking now of Proverbs 16 again, we readily and rightly say, praise God for his sovereignty and his power, that he creates everything for his purpose. Readily and rightly say such things, but the next line uh, is potentially where we get tripped up. Praise God for his sovereignty and power that he creates everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. God is glorious in his sovereignty, full stop, the end, accurate and true sentence. And so when we stumble to accept this as it comes to the wicked for the day of trouble, it is we who are mistaken and inconsistent, not God. And Paul, from that passage in Romans 9 that we read, has some some good wisdom on how we uh, might come to a good grip of such a doctrine. He says, as I emphasized, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Be it in in this doctrine or anything that we come to, the same words are applicable. Uh, Do you have a a difficulty accepting a particular notion uh, of right theology? Do you object uh, to what God says on any particular thing? Well, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to the the molder, why have you made me like this? Consider the, uh, uh, the potter who shapes the whatever he or she is making, does that pot have anything to say about how it is shaped? Certainly it doesn't. It's an inanimate object, certainly lesser in being than the the one who is shaping it. And so it is with God, and so it is with us. Uh, Humbling, perhaps, uh, but nonetheless accurate. In our own sinful merits, we are all worthy uh, of destruction. And so the surprising thing ought to be that God saves as many as he does, not that he doesn't save more. We have no right to say to him, why, why do you make me like this? Why don't you save more? Why aren't you merciful to more? The fact that he is merciful to any uh, is the thing which we ought to give him great praise for. And even if, for argument's sake, uh, he were merciful to none and all were damned, uh, still he would be good and right and glorious. He is glorified, as the passage from Romans 9 says. He is glorified as he saves some. These vessels prepared for mercy. As this contrasts the vessels prepared for wrath. It shows how glorious, how kind, how merciful such a God is. And the the third question of our our children's catechism that we use at home, the, the Westminster Shorter Shorter Catechism, I think gives us a good question and answer. It says, why did God make you and all things? And the answer comes, for his own glory. If we keep that in mind, if we have a a theocentric, a God-centered theology, if we always remember that God is good, uh, coming to such things as as this doctrine uh, become a whole lot easier. I... uh, Just by way of anecdote, uh, my name is a combination of two Hebrew words, the first being Tob, which means good, and the latter being Yah, short for Yahweh. Uh, Tobias is sort of the anglicized version. Uh, And so put it together, and it means uh, God is good or or God's goodness, depending on how you want to spin it. Uh, And that doctrine, quite aside from the fact that it's what my name means, uh, is I think a very useful thing as you come to texts like this. 
uh, in how you can understand them rightly and keep in mind that God is good uh, and we are the ones who are lesser and potentially wrong about such things. And so once you can accept uh, such notions, the meaning of the verses in Proverbs 16 really are very plain. Uh, God has made everything for its purpose. Praise be to him for his wisdom, his power, and his sovereignty. As a part of this, he has made the wicked for the day of trouble. The abominable, arrogant man will not go unpunished, as it says. And so by way of application, what might we do with such a notion? Well, firstly, two things. Uh, we don't know who the elect are. The elect may even be some of those who are presently particularly troublesome, arrogant, or abominable. Uh, but whom God will shower his abundant mercy upon, uh, we don't know. And so spread the gospel seed liberally. And secondly, Make pains in your own life to conform it to that of Christ. As, as uh, Peter says in his first epistle, and I love to quote it from the King James because it sounds so good, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Make pains to conform your life to Christ, removing that sin and conforming it to the way of goodness. God has made the wicked for trouble. He is glorified in their punishment. And we ought to remember, but for the grace of God, we would be the same. Third and final point, uh, confession and forsaking of sin rather than concealing the same leads to mercy. Come on over to, to Proverbs 28. Proverbs excuse me, 28, verse 13 says quite plainly, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Complementarily, uh, 2 Corinthians 7.10, you're probably familiar with the verse, says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And I think these, coming back to Proverbs, these verses uh, present us with a, a principle, not a mathematical formula per se. Uh, it describes the respective attitudes of the, on the first hand, one who hides away his sin, not confessing or dealing with it, sort of sweeping it under the rug, uh, and not wanting to deal with sin. And then another uh, who doesn't sweep the sin under the rug, but rather confesses and forsakes it. And I say a mathematical formula in that I don't think the verses are saying that if, if just one sin uh, goes unconfessed when you're on your deathbed, well then, bad luck for you, you're damned. Uh, I think it's talking about an underlying attitude. Uh, and as... As I was preparing, I was reminded of our, our membership covenant, which I think is uh, something which is good to be reminded of uh, from time to time, the things that we have committed to uh, in becoming members of this church. Uh, one point, being point 11, uh, says that you commit to do the following when I sin, and it gives two things. Firstly, confess my sin to God and to fellow believers. And secondly, 
to repent and seek help to put my sin to death. Two things which are, are very much in line with such a verse. The, the confession of sin to God and one another is seen in Scripture and is echoed in our membership covenant. Uh, and such a thing is a, a beautiful uh, sin-killing mechanism. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but uh, from time to time when we've had uh, our corporate times of prayer and there's been the opportunity to, uh, to confess sin, and obviously we're praying, so we're doing it to God, uh, but nonetheless, it, it's audible, it's in the presence of others. Uh, such a thing is uh, really humiliating. Uh, and there's one way in which the humiliation can be a bad thing. Perhaps it shows pride in our hearts that we are humiliated to confess such a thing. Uh, but in another way, it is a very good thing because you, uh, you confess this sin, praying primarily to God, nonetheless in the presence of other witnesses uh, who, Lord willing, uh, will hold you accountable, who uh, will be watching for that sin in your life to, to hold you accountable so that you don't uh, continue in such a vein. It produces, uh, hopefully, a godly grief that leads to salvation with no regret at all, a zealousness to put sin to death in our own lives. And notice also that the verse from Proverbs, uh, and again echoed in the membership covenant, uh, advocates the, the forsaking or the putting to death of our sin. So let me ask you introspectively, uh, have you an area of sin which is particularly hard for you to kick? Or do not conceal it. Confess it. Forsake it. Seek godly counsel. Seek godly accountability. Uh, put into place whatever needs to occur in order to remove that sin from your life. Uh, doesn't our Lord say that we ought to, if our eye causes us to sin, that we ought to pluck it out of our heads and cast it from us? Uh, for it's better to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. God takes sin uh, very seriously, and so ought we. So if a, if a screen causes you to sin in one way or another, better to be without your iPad and your iPhone uh, than to be thrown into the hell of fire as much as we rely on them in 2023. That being, of course, just one example. And such a notion of repentance, such a, uh, a degree of wanting to put sin to death, produces salvation without regret. Such fear of God leads to life. And once again, uh, the knowledge uh, of the, the vastness of our sin ought to drive us to Christ's feet and make Jesus all the more glorious and sweet to us. So to, uh, to summarize, to conclude, uh, sin is terrible, perhaps a redundant statement. It is sinful and anti-God, and what's more, it causes difficulty, discipline, and damnation. And so may we pray that uh, in us, may God be glorified in his extension of mercy, not in his judging of us. He is glorified in both, but may he extend his hand of mercy to us. Nonetheless, God can do nothing but what is good, and he is glorified in his judgment if the wicked, in the wicked uh, and his extension of mercy to, to sinners like we. 
And lastly, in summary, confess and forsake your sin. Uh, as James and I studied uh, during last week uh, in parts of Hebrews, uh, the best, to put it in a strange way, the best of sin is less than, is worth less than the worst, quote unquote, of Christ. The best of sin is worth less than the worst of Christ. And so you will lose nothing and gain everything in having confessed and forsake sin. And more to the point, uh, such confession and forsaking of sin glorifies our great God as the onlooking world uh, and the onlooking heavenly hosts can see how God uh, reaches into history uh, and changes the lives of sinners uh, like you and I, those who are hostile to God and yet by his great grace are made into to friends, to sons and daughters of he. Uh, so may that be the case in us.